So thank you, listeners. I just want to share a review that we got from C. Graham. If you stumble across this podcast, fight through episode one. It has good info and introduces you to the host, but it's sort of all over the place. Yes, Graham, it was all over the place. True. They begin their stride in episode two. Every episode, even episode one, in parentheses, has moments of legit sex education and thought-provoking ideas for people from conservative religious background to consider. So thank you very much, C. Graham. We appreciate that. We appreciate your reviews because your reviews help us rise in the algorithms you're still doing it. We appreciate your reviews because they help other people discover the show. Okay, we appreciate your reviews because it helps other people to discover our show. Thank you. Mm, I just haven't had a barbecue with that kind of tang and a chip, maybe ever. And that literally changed my life. That was, wow. Now I could do five more shows. It's all about the tang. <laughs> Thank you. I was looking for a clip for like right before. Oh, there you there, go. There, now I got it. It's, it's all about the tang. It's all about the tang, baby. From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts. An exploration of sexuality and spirituality. For anyone who's curious or convinced, there must be more. With your hosts, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusick, Steve Weens, Luke Bronner, and me, Becky Patton. So we ended the last episode. I mentioned a question that had come in from a listener on Instagram. I want to actually just read their question in their words so that we can respond to it. I think it's a really great question. They said, I don't know if this is an after dark question or not, but I for sure wonder when normal, healthy, quote, my body is attracted to your body because I'm a human person, end quote, goes from that to whatever one defines as, quote, lust. Is lust even really a thing? Is it just when attraction leads to an unwanted behavior? Can attraction ever be deemed unhealthy in any way? Is the real unhealthy thing just denying its existence? That's the end of their question. So I would love for us to respond to that because I I think it's great. I also don't know, like, what is the difference between just being intensely attracted to someone and lusting over them? Is lust even really a thing? Those are great questions. It is a great question. I'm trying to think if I've ever heard the word lust outside of the church. That's a great question too, Ashley. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. the movie Seven is the only other place. That oh yeah, comes the to Seven mind Deadly Sins, but it's sort of connected to <laughs> yeah. church folklore yeah. at least. Yeah. Well, I come as you are. She uses that terminology. The book. Come the as book. You are. Come as you are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she uses the word lust in there, but she doesn't use it in a negative. I think there's something about how our opinion of lust is formed in our brain that I think is really important because if we've associated it with lust is bad, then every time we have thoughts that include maybe desire and things like that, we probably have one category we put it in. And so I think the way I would define lust at the core, and I don't, I I think this is a, it is still evolving. So I reserve the right that this is written in pencil still. And at some point, I mean, I just will keep learning and I'm going to keep renaming things in ways that I think as I become more healthy too. But the way I describe lust right now is when it becomes something of wanting to consume something versus being communion with them. So here's an example that is outside the church. When I watch Sahara with Matthew McConaughey. Wow, that, that's a deep cut. 
<laughs> and he has his shirt off. I mean, that's any movie, but yes. Yes, but in that, uh, that movie, it's the music. You it's can the really music. just say Matthew McConaughey because I'm not sure he wears a shirt very often it's at like, all. But, in, the, in the car commercials, he does. Yeah. But <laughs> so it's those a are tight boring. shirt. <laughs> yeah, they are kind of boring. Although he uses his voice and even his voice. So anyway, but I want to get back to the lust and this element of it. There is this element of there is something my body responds physically to seeing him. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's a beautiful response. Now, I don't want to consume him. I don't want to, but I recognize that and I acknowledge that and I'm not ashamed of it. And it's like, that's like desire rising up. And if I push that away and say that's bad, that's actually a physical response. And it's where do I take that with it? And I would say the power that I have to engage with my desire is a power I've been given. And I don't think he has any control over my power whatsoever. I just don't think he does. But what I do with that is my responsibility. So I think the church has defined it, anything that has to do with attraction, I'm here, I'm going to use these quotes again, outside of marriage is lust. And so if you lust with your eye, I mean, the the classic thing, if you lust with your eye, poke it out. I think that's in Matthew or something. And the reality is, is the whole world would be blind. If we view lust that violently, can we actually have the conversation around like desire? Would I desire to have a evening with Matthew McConaughey? No, because the it'd be so awkward. Eye, you say no, but your eyes say yes. Oh my I'm God, just... <laughs> if I had a relationship with him, yes. But I mean, it'd be so awkward. Hey, take your shirt off for me. I just want to see. I mean, that would be me consuming him. Right. But if I had a relationship with him, I mean, that'd be totally different. I don't have a relationship. So I want to be aware that I haven't always felt the freedom to feel my own body. That's been something that I've grown in and I've given myself permission and I've had to work through and wonder about why do I feel shame about feeling moisture in areas of my body? Why would I feel shame? And that's my body responding to the way it's made to respond. Moisture is an indication of arousal. Is arousal bad then? I think it's actually helpful for me to be able to notice arousal. I kind of have a funny story. I was doing this workshop and I was talking about penal arousal and I noticed there was this guy on the second row and he's kind of like leaning over, Mm. he's leaning over further and further and I can see him taking kind of some deep breaths and I realized what was happening is he was getting an erection from me talking about penal erection and, you know, what's natural and, you know, just the whole element of this and he's, I can see him just deep breathing and he's kind of pulling his shirt forward and so, I mean, I'm like, what do you do? You're the speaker. You can see what's happening. I mean, just call it right out, right? Like this. <laughs> here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> row three. Exhibit mm. A. Poor guy. But you know what I did is because I could feel that energy from him. And I said, right now, I want you all to pay attention to your bodies. I want you to notice what's actually going on. I want you to notice if you're maybe even sensing some arousal in the genital region. I want you to give your, be kind to your body to notice that. And within moments, I saw the guy sit back down and things were calming down. He was acknowledging it. I acknowledged it for him, but I think it's like, like there's, I feel sad that in a Christian setting, we can't acknowledge the actual way the body functions as good 
that instead we make it, we feel shame about it. It's funny, like when you first started talking, I was thinking like, when I think of lust, which it's just not a word I like. I mean, it's just like, it feels laced with shame for me. But we talked in previous episodes about the monster that we were raised to believe was inside of us, as especially as like evangelical boys. And that would have been the way that I would have named that monster. It was the lust monster. Like it, that was the thing that was always trying to overtake. And it's funny to hear you talk about the power for, of your own desire. Like, oh, of owning my power. This is my power. I can't yeah. control anything that's going on for Matthew McConaughey. I can control what's going on for me. So I have a power yeah. in my desire. I have a power over my desire. And see, that was the thing that I would have loved to have heard as a kid because that freedom did not exist to me. To me, the desire was, in fact, sinful. Any sort of physical response, even just like an intellectual response to seeing an attractive person, I felt shame for that. I felt guilty for that. I felt like I was breaking some sort of rules. And it's funny, like hearing you talk and thinking about my own sort of quirks throughout my entire life, I was always very uncomfortable with either of my parents. If like somebody popped up on TV and they acknowledged that person was attractive, that made me very uncomfortable because I was just like, my parents are going to cheat on each other. Like they're, like they're that's clearly the next step. <laughs> but like, it, it always felt like they were breaking a rule, like they were, quote, lusting. And mm -hmm. I never really understood that, like, you know, I, all of this is to say, I'm really glad this person wrote in with this question. Mm -hmm. Had I thought of it, I would have also asked this question. Mm -hmm. Certainly a younger version of myself would have, you know, I just, I just didn't know where that line was, I guess. Well, like, I, that's something that I think is really interesting, too, is we're always looking for what is the line? When have I crossed over it? And I don't know that there is a line. Yeah. Which is scary when you're in the evangelical world because it, that's where there's so much of this is right and this is wrong. And let's keep this gray area. We don't want to dance in this area. And I don't know that there is a line. I really honestly don't. I think it, a lot of it has to do with factors of culture of how we've been raised around it will determine what is good for one person. I am watching our daughter and son-in-law raise their children in Germany. They have a very different view around the body and how they actually, in that culture, it's very different. The preschool my grandsons are in, the boys and the girls pee side by side out in the forest. They have it set up and they are, and it's very respectful and it's very, but there, it's just, it's, there's a respect to that. And it, but it's like, there's just a difference. And so I want to say, depending upon the culture we've grown up in, depending upon, I want to say, especially the spiritual influence, and then our family of origin, we can have all kinds of different layers for where that line is. And so I think the line is a little more squiggly than... Yeah. I mean, I agree that there's not a line. I just don't think I have another language for it to say what I'm trying to say. But it even comes down to like, <laughs> I can think of a lot of scenarios where we'll be my wife and I'll be watching something and she'll ask me like, do you think so-and-so is attractive? Or like, who's an actress that you find really attractive or something? And I never can answer that question. I'm always very uncomfortable with the question. I even think about like hanging out with guy friends and they talk about some girl being hot or something like that's just, I'm just not comfortable with that because it feels like I'm not supposed to think that way. That feels like morally wrong to me. And I, like I can tell you today that I don't think it's morally wrong, but it doesn't change the impulse in that moment to be like, I'm not having that conversation with you. You know, those things are not to be acknowledged. Those sort of thoughts are not to be fed, if that makes any sense. I keep thinking about the sentence like she or he has like a real lust for life. And I've always thought of that as a positive 
view of the word lust. Like, yes, like they're hungry and thirsty to experience what is around them and in front of them and before them. And when I think about it, I mean, I don't ever use the word because I'm with you, Luke. I think it was laced with shame. But then I think about that sentence and it's like, if I died and someone described me as somebody who had a real lust for life, I would take that as a huge compliment. So, I mean, like I am deeply attracted to Lucas and I desire him and I can look at a picture of him or like he can just walk in the door and I'm like a golden retriever. I'm like always excited that he's there. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, yes. And I definitely am deeply, yeah, I'm just really attracted to him. It's awesome. I really enjoy it. But does that mean that I'm not attracted to other attractive people like to my taste? No, I don't like stop noticing someone who walks by me, but I just don't like go on like a a rampage in my mind about all the things I want to like do to that person, I guess. And part of it is that, I mean, when I was single and I saw attractive people, my mind ran a lot more freely, honestly. And like sting, notwithstanding. <laughs> oh, that was sting. so amazing last night. I think we need to repeat that story because it was just sting is a dreamy man. He is. <laughs> and he plays a mean bass guitar. <laughs> You know, I, so I, what's going through in my mind is a couple of things. One is if you were watching a TV show and Luke Bronner was the character and Luke Bronner found someone attractive, but then he felt bad about it. Then he felt badly about it. But then you could somehow see on the TV show that he kept thinking about this person that he was attracted to. And he kept going on and on. You would not go, Oh, that guy has a problem. You would say, I love that guy. I relate to that guy. That guy's great. So that's one thing. I, I think we have to move beyond this. I'm terrible if I, even if I linger, if I find someone attractive and then in my mind, I fantasize about what I might do. I even think I would put that in the category of pretty normal, pretty okay. I agree. Do no harm. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. That's just my personal I'm with you. I don't even want to put any kind of religious stuff on that. That's just what I think. But then the other thing I would ask, this question could go to anyone, but I do want to ask the women in the room. Have you ever felt, felt lusted after like someone lusting? And I'll use that word weirdly because it's in the room already in a way that it felt weird, mm-hmm. oppressive, you know what I mean? Now, Uncomfortable. So now that's something different. And I don't know how to categorize that. Is that crossing a line? I'm just asking the question, not trying to... Yes. The answer to the question is yes, I have. And yes, that has felt invasive and I felt incredibly vulnerable in that. But I also realize there is a power I have even in that to block the energy that's coming towards me in that way. And... I've practiced doing that because I want to be able to, especially the kind of conversations I want to be able to have with both men and women. And because I'm talking to people about very intimate details of their life. So I regularly put a shield around my energy field just for the purpose of they don't get to interact. I don't want to receive that in. So I reject that. And that feels like self-protection for me. But I do that specifically because of what I do. And I was taught how to do that. But what I want to say that I know for sure women have felt that and they felt literally helpless. 
because they feel like someone is literally penetrating with their eyes to try and consume a part of their anatomy. And I want to say that's probably what's happening. But I really want to say to women, you can empower yourself to go, wait, I don't have to take that. But here's the other side of it. Some people actually enjoy it. That's right. Hmm. Some people do enjoy it. And I'll openly say, I enjoy feeling attractive. Me too. I enjoy feeling attractive to men and to women. I enjoy that. That When somebody says that to me and it's in a healthy way, or it's like somebody says they're attracted, they've been attracted to me. I'm like, oh, thank you. I just, it touches something in me, but I don't let it penetrate me because then that would be my constant need to. So, But I think what I'm hearing you say, Stephen, that question is like, where I go anyway, is when it doesn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely had that. And I feel like it is interesting to think about the energy piece of like at different times in my life when I was more, I felt more vulnerable because I was looking for relationships. So like the signals were out, I'm available. And then you feel like a response, but then you can tell there's like, you can feel that consumption energy coming toward you. And that's where I think at the end of the day, it's like, oh, you're not seeing me. You're not looking at all of me. And that was one thing like with Alan, where it was like, it was the first time in a relationship I experienced both the attraction energy and the feeling seen as a whole being together instead of one or the other. Because I think a lot of the relationships I was in, or I don't even call them relationships, but encounters or whatever before we were together was, it was so consumptive and I was also consuming that other person too. And so it's just, it's interesting to me like how, Safety really comes from when you someone is seeing the fullness of you and not just your physical, what you offer physically. That's um, helpful. Yeah. I think for me, when I think about feeling attractive, like that is an inside job for me. Like if I'm leaning into other people's viewpoints of me to understand if I'm attractive or not, then that's going to get really messy for me. But I mean, honestly, like, I've toured most of my life. I've been in front of a lot of people and I can't really say I've ever felt that way. Like felt like somebody was consuming me, but I also have a narrative that like nobody's really attracted to me. It's like part of my story. Wait, I but am. Like, no, no, I know. I mean, <laughs> I think you're going you the faces are on no, this table. I love that. No, I mean, I don't think I'm an unattractive person. Let me yeah, like I say that yeah. first. But like, I never thought of myself as a person where like people would want to do sexual things with me, like specifically, because we're talking about sexual attraction. We're not talking about attraction as a person or, and that's just a story I carried. So like anytime a man like approached me or I approached them and there was some sort of acknowledgement of like, Hey, we have a sexual chemistry or attraction. I spent most of the time being shocked (laughs) and like, this is great. Like, wow, this one really landed. You know, there's only been one or two times in my life where somebody had feelings for me and I did not have feelings for them. But even that, that didn't feel like violating or strange. I mean, because it's so much more all encompassing. I think the other thing to think about is different people are turned on in different ways. Like I think of demisexual identities who they're not necessarily not visually stimulated, but that doesn't drive the bus of stimulation. And for them, it's more like emotional connectedness, safety, intellectual safety and connectedness, maybe an experience first. And then arousal follows after that, where it's like, I can see Lucas and be aroused. I can be very visually stimulated, even though I am a woman. We have stories that women are and men are, which I don't believe are true. So, you know, some of this conversation of lusting 
might have different shapes and forms based on how your arousal is driven. And so I think that we're really talking about visual stimulation, I think currently. And I would hate to think that someone will walk around feeling shame that they're visually stimulated. That's just how they're made. Like they can't control that. What they can control is what they do with the stimulation that happens. And like, you know, if they need to go home and take care of themselves, I don't think that's wrong either. It's like, you don't do it in public. You know, you don't do it without permission if it involves somebody else. But like, there are other ways to nurture your body and say, oh my gosh, like body, you work in this way. And like, that's okay. I'm going to get to you. You know what I mean? Like if you're in a place where you can't tend to yourself immediately, but I don't know if you have something to say. No, I just, I think that's fantastic. I think there's just going back to their question in the sense that when does attraction become unhealthy is what they're asking. And I would love to have that question in a room full of people that didn't grow up in the purity culture Mm -hmm. and then ask that same question in a room of people who did grow up in the purity culture. And I think we would have very vastly different elements because that's what I'm finding in a lot of the research that I do is there's a vast difference of where unhealth is actually registered at which degree? I mean, it's like, it's so much quicker. It feels like in the evangelical world, or I would say, especially because of the purity movement. I so, was in San Francisco last week with a couple of buddies who did not grow up in the purity culture are not involved in the church. We were sitting in this cocktail bar, 50 stories up, you know, great view. And these two really beautiful women came in and one of my buddies just looked at the, one of the women looked at us and said, Wow. (laughs) But then they're like, okay, you know, like they moved on and that felt healthy to me. That felt healthy where if three pastors were sitting around, most likely no one would say anything. Mm -hmm. All three would be making lots and lots of covert glances that way. It would kind of dominate the energy, but no one would say anything. Do you know what I mean? So same energy is in the room, mm-hmm. but it's one is covered up mm-hmm. and the other is very covert mm-hmm. and the other is very open and public out there. Now, my observation of what happened between the three of us guys was that it was healthy. It was a noticing. It wasn't, oh my gosh, let's now talk about what we're going to do. You know, there was and none you of that. Like you catcalling know? her no, or like co- doing no, anything strange. no, yeah. <laughs> no. But that's an example, I think. I think it's a great example. And let's call that arousal. Arousal, I would say arousal is normal, healthy, Mm -hmm. good. But the pretending that it's not there, that's probably not healthy. I think that makes it worse. Because you're not like letting the pressure out of the pot. Yes. And if we go back to the definition of tov, what's the fruit of that? You just said the fruit that I hear you saying is, oh, we moved on to another realm. Whereas... The difference between Tove and Ra is that Tove actually has fruit that continues to produce if, good fruit. If we have folks who are listening that have not been following the show for three seasons, can you go into a little bit of what Tove and Ra are? Because well, it's can't something you do that- the nerdy? Tove and Ra are two Hebrew words for good and bad. Tove means good. It's where we find in Genesis 1 and 2. And this was created, it was good. And this was created, and it was good. But a rabbi friend has helped us really tease that out into good being not just qualitatively good, 
but good meaning there is something inside of you that when it is drawn out, it's generative and it's, that's the good. It's the good that's drawn out and keeps producing good over and over and over again. That's good. Raw is the opposite. Raw is when something gets drawn out and it's taken away or it's squashed down or it's destroyed in some form or fashion. We can all think of examples of that, but that's basically Tov and Ra, Hebrew words. So I want to say the Tov and the situation that you just said there is you buddies were out, you were having a good time together, you're really enjoying each other and acknowledgement was made of this, these beautiful women that walked in. Wow. Publicly, the energy was noticed. And then you went back to this incredibly great time that you were having together and being together. And what you described of like three or four pastors sitting together, it'd be squashed, would be, you'd be literally trying to engage with each other, but not really engaging with each other. Really, you're thinking this other thing and you're probably more than likely beating yourself up because you're thinking that thing. And so I would say that's raw because you're actually doing interior damage to yourself that's hidden. And that's some of the raw in this world that we don't actually see. It creates self-hatred. It creates depression. I mean, there's so many things. And I do believe our eyes were made to acknowledge beauty. I think our bodies are made to respond to beauty. I think our bodies are made to respond in an aroused way. And part of that is helping children to understand that's a natural part and give them some context and something to do with it. So the other language that was used interchangeably with lust was impure thoughts. That's, you know, language that I'm very familiar with hearing through my adolescence. And I'm thinking about like, this may take a minute to articulate. I was taught as I think a lot of boys and probably people were in purity culture to essentially avert your eyes. Like if you see something that is attractive, look away. The eye bounce. The eye bounce. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I'm thinking now about this narrative that I'm uncovering in midlife in partnership with my wife, who is sort of always able to call this out in me because she didn't grow up the way I did of not believing that I should have nice things or good things. Like I, you know, if it's like, I need new clothes, I want to go to like Marshall's and find stuff or I'm going to, you know, like I, she, where she's like willing to like, be like, no, you can have nice things. Like it's, we are of an age that we should have a house that we really want to live in or we should, you know, different things. And I have this very difficult time ever even arriving at a place where I think like I could have something nice. I could have something good. And I'm thinking about the connection of all these things where like, you know, I think that feeds the narrative. Like I grew up in an evangelical culture that not only allowed, but encouraged me to loathe myself, that encouraged me to hate myself, that it told me over and over and over how terrible I am. And the worse that I felt about myself, the worse I spoke about myself, the more I sort of belittled myself and condescended myself those were values to be praised. Those were like features, not bugs in the system. Those were things that like you're doing it right. They were encouraged and affirmed to constantly hate yourself. I even think about like, you know, I had a career as a worship leader for a long time and how much of the music was just, it was actually not in any way glorifying to God. It was a hundred percent about self-loathing and about how terrible I am. And so I'm saying all of that to say like that in combination with this mindset of like, don't even acknowledge attraction, look away from things that are good, turn away from things that are good, or that you sort of naturally reflexively 
like or are drawn to, how much that has fed a narrative in me of self-loathing. And I think there will probably be a lot of people who resonate with that, that like, there's a reason we all hate ourselves who <laughs> grew up in this world, you know, because we were trained to, we were encouraged to. And I think this is just another example of that. There's a reason why at 42 years old, I'm still struggling to figure out like, well, what's lust and what's not, you know, like that. I shouldn't be having those thoughts at this age, but. Well, thank God you are though. I mean. You know what I mean. I know like, what you mean. I, I mean, I'm just I wish saying. that I had resolved this at a much, I wish I'd never had to encounter these thoughts, right. but certainly that I had worked it out in my teens or twenties, you know. But you were surrounded by other people that were feeding. Yeah. So you, what you're illustrating is what you were fed that's what came out. Like literally what we eat, the fruit, uh, yeah. it's the fruit. That's the fruit. And now you're saying, I want a different fruit, so I want to eat something different. And will it, can it have a different result? I want to get away from binary thinking that desire equals sin, that wanting something nice equals entitlement. It's like there is no middle ground for me. I live in this mindset. And I, it's funny because I don't think of myself as like a binary thinking person, but I totally default to it. I default to like, yeah, if I'm attracted to that person, that means I am being unfaithful to my wife or something, you know, like there's, it's this massive leap from one to the other. And there's no middle ground for like, oh no, I'm just actually a person experiencing life as a person yes. that has good taste. Yes. Yeah, well, and that, that stood out to me actually, as you were speaking, I was like, you know, attraction is a spectrum. Desire totally. is multidimensional and a spectrum. And when you cut it all off, like, are there times where attraction and desire condense and concentrate in a way that it becomes predatory or unsafe or not? Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, but that's like, all the way to the other, you know, the other side, like there's so much in between that. Like I'm attracted to so many people and that doesn't always mean sexual attraction, but it could, it could be like 10% sexual, 90% friendship, or it could be 5% physical and 95% energetically. Like, but I don't shame the attraction. I allow myself to be curious and say, what is it about that person? that I really like. Do I like that person because they're actually mirroring something back to me about me that I really like, which is a lot of the time? Or is it just that I'm attracted to them because they're showing me something that's so opposite of who I am? And that's something I want more of in my life. And like, even like physically, I'm attracted to so many different kinds of people, but like, like the last man that I was sincerely interested in right before Lucas, when he crosses my mind now, it's not like I'm less attracted to him physically in my mind or that I'm all of a sudden, like, I don't remember or enjoy the sweet moments of conversation that we had between like he and I, but like when I think of him comparatively to like what I'm experiencing with Lucas, it's just not an issue because like I'm experiencing so much with Lucas that I enjoy that it's not threatening the security of that relationship. The reason why I bring this up and it helped me is that my partner had ex-girlfriends that he cared deeply for and they were, they were seemed like healthy, secure bonds. And I'm so glad that he had those because part of that has informed the kind of partner he is today to me. And so when I think about him thinking about his exes, because I'm sure they cross his mind, he spent two years with his last ex. Like it doesn't like make me jealous or insecure to know that he might have like a nice thought about her because I'm having nice thoughts about somebody else in my past. And that's actually gives me space and him space to just have the experience you're having without having it be scary or all of a sudden it's out of control 
And now I have to wonder if our bond is secure. It's just not like that. So like if Lucas or I at a restaurant, we see an attractive man or woman or somewhere in between and we notice and I'll just say, wow, like that woman or that man is really beautiful. And he'll look and I'll like, yeah. And then it's like, we just keep on going. And it's just like nice that we don't have to pretend because when we ignore it, that's when it can start to fester and start to like access other things that aren't even probably even initially about that attraction. They're probably about something else much deeper that's been ignored and not nurtured for a really long time. The thing that has been coming out to me through this whole third season, and we talked about this off mic a little bit, is that like, I'm realizing like it wasn't just sexual desire that I was taught to suppress. It's everything. It was emotion. It was emotion has been, I've been taught to suppress it. And what I'm realizing is even with like the whole eye bounce philosophy is that I was also just taught not to trust myself. Like we talked about the whole thing of like, yeah, you don't hug a girl because who knows, you may end up like under a church pew or something like that. Yeah, your pants are coming down. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, but that is the lack of trust. I was taught not to trust myself that, you know, the boundaries were set so small and so tight around us that freedom was an illusion. For some people that could prevent them from learning measured behavior. We have to learn in small increments. If you think about a small child, you learn in small increments in order to be able to walk, right? The same thing as sexual beings. I just, the thing that is so sad is you were trained by people to fear your body, but it was actually probably the people who feared their, they didn't have a relationship with Mm -hmm. their own. So they were teaching out of their fear. And so that's my question and wondering is how can we help we can't go back and undo that, but we can recognize when we're responding in fear. We can recognize when our response is coming from fear. And if it is, if it's coming from fear, then our cortisol's up and we're not actually, we're not in our full brain. There's no nuance. Yeah, there's not. And so part of this is learning how to live with the juxtaposition of, oh, I can see an attractive man and I can honor that is a great body and I can honor my body, what's going on for me. And I can be like, oh, I can still be in my body and therefore I don't have to go consume something to feel something. Hmm. And I would say through that, you've learned to trust your body to Luke's point. Like that's, that is like, takes time to learn and that it isn't going to go to zero to 60 or whatever. But if there isn't that space to learn that trust, you have to figure that out later in life. And I keep coming back to the story about your grandkids and, that innocence of peeing in the forest because nothing's hidden. And I keep coming back to how like if things aren't hidden and it's just okay. And at some point I'm sure they will be like, now it's time when that will change for them. Mm -hmm, It will. But there's just that space and that health that's there. And I keep coming back to what this listener said. I wrote down like, is the real unhealthy thing just denying its existence, which is so much of what we're saying in this suppression. Suppression. Yeah. And I think of your story of from the beginning where you kind of talked about that of like the man when you were speaking and he was just trying to deny, deny. And once it was acknowledged, he just relaxed. And it was like, he, I mean, his arms were back and he, I mean, within a few minutes because it, but I knew what was going on and there's, he was getting more and more tense. And I think that's what we do when we suppress. What we're doing is we're actually suppressing and it has to come out some way in us. And it comes out, I think, in frustration, in anger. It can come out in lashing out or, or I, I don't sexual desire. I mean, that releases tension too. Yes, I mean, it does. And I just can 
there is something beautiful. And I, I want to circle back to what if this is part of our divine interwovenness is that we have the capacity to see and celebrate beauty. Definitely. I mean, if that's part of the divine, then it just doesn't make sense to have a creator, a God, a, a divine entity, whatever it is that is trying to suppress us and make us settle for less than. I think your wife is onto something, Luke. She wants you to experience in real time life here in the fullness of who you are as a 42 year old man. And she wants to celebrate. Yeah. With great calves. Yeah. But I mean, she wants you to celebrate and how does that play through everything? Just to be able to celebrate your body by what you put on it versus suppress that you are this tall, handsome man. Why wouldn't Lacey want you to have something awesome on that frame? That's the thing. It's like, it's not that like, I know she does for me. And and some of this comes from like, you know, part of my story is that I, I lived in Haiti for a couple of years in my early twenties and truly like lived with the poorest people in the Western hemisphere. And so there's also a lot of, of sort of undoing that has to happen in my mind to really spend money on myself at all. That's a difficult thing because I don't have the nuance of like, for me to do that is to rob the poor, essentially. Like that's sort of the like mental work that I have to do often. But it's just interesting to me to think about all of this suppression stuff, because when the narrative is that the natural experiences I'm having as a person of desire are actually this monster trying to get out, when that inevitably happens, when the monster, you know, wins essentially, and I, and I, which would only mean that like I have a natural reaction to desire. The narrative becomes, I have lost that battle. I am now that monster. I am disgusting. I am that, you know what I'm saying? And I think that's the thing that I think a lot of people, I think probably especially straight evangelical boys. I think a lot of us have that experience and, and I think that's where, you know, we talk about the, the sort of, epidemic that is porn addiction within the church. And it's like, yeah, because you've got a whole lot of folks that think they already lost and they've become the monster. And so that's where they're going to go. Does that make sense? It does. I think if you are convinced your operating system is bad, you will only produce bad. And I think most of us in the church were convinced that we had a bad operating system. So we're not that surprised when, oh no, impure thoughts come into our minds and they come out and because we're convinced that that is our operating system. And so naturally we're going to start having a lot of self conversations like what's wrong with me and versus if we are convinced that we have our operating system is basically good and good comes out. Do we make mistakes? Of course. Do we miss the mark? Of course. But that's key. Like this is a key, key point of theology And most of us that grew up in the culture that you just described are convinced still to this day that we have a bad operating system. So we're not that surprised when bad comes out. I think it's also really important to acknowledge that we're talking about like inside job stuff. Yeah. Like when someone is observing that they're attracted to somebody, it's the inside job to, instead of shaming yourself, observe it. You could even ask yourself, what is it about that Mm -hmm. person? And that person's a human being like attaching humanity 
and then taking a beat and moving on. It's when I think about things like sexual harassment, or I think about things like catcalling or unwelcomed proposal or invitation. And then like any situation where someone's leveraging their power to ask for something without permission, you know, those are sideways examples of how attraction can turn into something that could potentially be harmful. But that doesn't mean that every time you're attracted to someone, you're fated for it to become harmful. There's so much other opportunity for it to be good or exciting or sweet or just a moment that passes by. Like, I think what I'm hearing from you is that it was communicated that like any thought is fated for destruction. And that is really terrifying. That would be like, if I thought like every piece of food in my mouth is going to make me fat, well, then I'm going to avoid eating altogether and my body will die. It will not sustain, but I have to learn what kind of foods are great to digest when, how much of certain foods are better and worse for my body, the time of day that it's good, like the place, you know? And, and so like, I can't just like say, oh, all food is bad because I, it is not sustainable. And what's happened for people who have cut off desire, cut off attraction, it's not sustainable. Parts of you, they're not dead forever if you're feeling that way, but like parts of you will die. And like, that's not Tove, that's raw. And, and I think that's the relationship to it and the nuance is so important because of that. I think one of the things that's important is to notice what our operating system is. And I am not technical. Everybody knows that, <laughs> but I only do Mac. And for years I tried to do PC. Yeah, that's it. Okay, sorry. You're doing great. Okay. And my daughter was getting ready to go to college and I made a decision to go 100% Mac because I had support. I could go into that bar and I could, the Apple bar, and they would help train me and they would teach me what it was to download a file because I, I knew nothing. And my daughter was my IT person. So I want to go to the operating system as a thing. I, I think we have to recognize what operating system we're in. And can we notice when we go back to an operating system that has a lot more viruses in it for us? That was my main reason for choosing the Mac. Now, I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but the reality is, is I think the first step is we need to recognize what's my operating system for what I believe to be true about me. And my first step towards healing was I literally embraced something from a Celtic tradition that said, all that God made is good. And I wrote it on post-it notes. I would write it in the steam on the shower when I came out that I am good. And I didn't believe it because I didn't have anybody nurturing that in me and telling me that. But I knew that there was something in something that I had read that I just was like, I can't believe in a God that doesn't see me as good already. And it was a small child that taught me. All I'm saying is we have to start somewhere. And that sounds, even as I'm saying it now, I feel kind of foolish that I, it was post-it notes and it was journaling it. And I would take a piece of paper and I would write, I am good. I am good. I am good. I am made in the image of someone who's good. And I kept asking the question, what does that actually mean for me? And whatever our first step is, it needs to be something that's authentic for where we're at versus something that is 10 miles down the road 
But I can't tell you how many times I still return to that statement when I'm trying to beat myself up for something I've done or I've hurt somebody or something. I'm like, man, I'm just a bitch. I mean, I have had to find ways to embrace my eightness. My root sin is lust. That what is, sucks. What, is, what does that as mean? As an eight. What do you mean? I mean, that's, yeah. Root, what are you talking about? Your root Every, sin. On the Enneagram. Enneagram. On the Enneagram. So like a seven is gluttony. There's like a root. Oh, I don't know this part. I don't know that Enneagram. they did that. That's kind of weird. Yeah. It makes, well, it can break that down. That it's, actually I, makes a lot of sense. Go, go listen to some, some other podcast. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to break it down. But what I'm saying is that I had to come to terms with lust as a part. And I don't see it as a root sin. I see it as an energy force within me. There is this lust for life. There's this desire to, and it's part of my passion. And that's where I had to find a different word for lust because it's passion. I am a passionate person, but I, that gets me in trouble a lot. And so when those times when I want to beat myself up, I will return to the thing that I started with. No, I, I am good. I made a mistake. Okay, I made a mistake. Can I have compassion on myself? I am good. At the core, I'm good. And that's, that was my first step. So for me, it was the Celtic tradition. I could see something in that God that was different than I saw in the evangelical tradition. And that's where I gravitated towards. One thing I just want to add to that, because it's beautiful to hear you use that example, because that was part of my own healing too, was the the naming. And one thing I want to say that was fascinating was I would, years ago, I remember like laying on the floor in my apartment and just like doing some breathing, some like work just to get into my body and not saying that as a certain point, you have to do that, but just coming present. And I would say out loud, I am good. But what's actually more powerful was saying you are good and hearing Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. being spoken over, even if it was my own voice, you are good. You are good. You are good. Because it's the internalization of that, hearing that, like, it's that child part of you that needs to hear that. And I think sometimes the I am part just it doesn't separate your, in the same way in your brain or something, but I flip back and forth and sometimes I just need to hear the, you are that. good. Like you're being told Look, by. The reason why I think that's true, Ashley, that's so, so true is because when we get trapped in our thinking yeah, and our minds actually are not good at complex things, <laughs> like we think that our minds reduce things down to good or bad, safe or dangerous, binary thinking. That's what our minds are trained to do. That's what our brains do. But when you can detach and separate yourself from yourself and say to yourself, you are good, then it's like you've climbed outside of yourself and now you're holding yourself, looking at yourself. That's why I always bring up the TV show example of when I find myself in a shame spiral, I try to imagine I'm watching myself on a TV show. And I like that guy. I like him. He's quirky. And, oh, man, he keeps falling down the same hole. But I don't, he's good. I would never say, oh, that loser, but when I'm trapped. So I think that healthy detachment, another way to think about it, like in a system, if you find yourself caught in a system, you can move toward health when you have it versus it has you. When you're trapped inside of it, it has you, you you can't get out. But, But when you get to the point where you can, be the subject holding the object, looking at it, saying, wait, I don't believe that anymore. Like someone said, when I used to believe in hell, you know, well, that's an example of a kind of thinking where now I used to be in a system where you couldn't even think that, you know, but now I can hold that system. I can look at it and I can say, 
well, these four beliefs that I used to think were inviolate are bullshit, but I'm holding it and I can name that and I can move on. That healthy detachment is such an important part of climbing out of this way of thinking, this bad operating system way of thinking. I think the other part of that too is like, for me, the first step would have to be before the I am good or the you are good. And it is that like, I have to become the authority Mm. about who I am because I keep thinking like my whole life, we talked about this Latifah, like my whole life, like being good was the thing. That was what I wanted. I just wanted to be good. And the sort of expectation that was put before me constantly was like, well, be good, be good, be good. And while there were people in my life who were constantly telling me you are good, the authority in my life was the church. It was the theology that I was being raised under because it constantly told me that I'm not good. And so I have to identify that like the source that I believed, the authority in my life was telling me that I'm not good. And so before I can do the work of telling myself I am good or you are good, I have to trust myself as that authority. I have to become the authority. I have to become the source for that affirmation that actually matters in my life, which is probably just like a step towards wholeness for any person, regardless of your sort of theological background. But like, I think for me, that would be step number one is choosing contrary to all that is within me to trust myself. I also think, so we're saying, you know, trust yourself so that you can even hear yourself say, yeah, I am good. You are good. Thanks for saying all of that in a much simpler way. No, I think how you said it was beautiful. And I think how you guys said it is beautiful. I'm thinking about the thing after that is understanding and maybe believing, you know, how connected we all are so that if I'm good, maybe that means you're good. And the person I'm struggling with, they're good. And the person at the market that I don't know that I find attractive, they're also good. I believe we're all image bearers. We all reflect divine light, divine goodness, and we're also human beings. And so in our humanity and in our learning, we can and and will cause harm and that's painful. But for me, one of the things that helped me resist wanting to harm someone else or harm myself is the language. I am good. You are good. If I hurt myself, I hurt you. If I hurt you, I hurt me. And so Hmm. that initially kind of breaks down like the consumptive nature. If we're going to go back to sexual attraction, like I can like hold that you are beautiful and sexy and desirable. And I can even like think like, Oh, in another life or on another planet, like maybe you and I are together or like whatever (laughs) it is. And then like still enjoy the partner that I deeply love and have now, or if I was single, enjoy myself and enjoy figuring out who I want to connect with. But like, it turns like the consumptive piece of attraction to like, wow, like beholding almost, which is pretty cool, you know? And so I think for the person that is feeling afraid, like, okay, like maybe I'm okay. Like maybe I'm good, but like, I really, I don't want to hurt somebody. I don't want something to come out sideways. Well, like, again, this is all inside jobs. We're not talking about approaching anybody and saying, Hey man, you're sexy. Like we're not saying any of that. Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's maybe just, if he walked in, we yeah, might. It's all inside yeah, work. You know what Depends I mean? Depends on if he had a shirt on or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, Wearing a shirt, true. it's like, dude, you're boring. Yeah. <laughs> Whisper in my Cadillac, ear. Yeah. <laughs> Whisper in my ear. I mean, is that, the, I don't know if like that's yeah, I think also that's, helpful. I think that is helpful. Yeah. I also think that protects against the other part of this that is rampant, especially within evangelicalism and maybe just within Western thinking which is narcissism, like all of the self-loathing, which feels like an alternative to pride. 
it's still just narcissism. It's just the other side of a coin that I don't want to have in my pocket anymore. Yeah. One thing I want to acknowledge is what you said, though, about the trust piece, because I feel like that is critical in a healing journey. And I mean, and maybe it's even just something we unpack in a deeper conversation, because I do feel like that's something we are robbed of in the church in general. But one thing that's been really helpful for me is there's a woman, Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist, mm. and she has plethora of resources around like self-healing work. But as far as beginning that process of trusting yourself, she talks about making one small promise a day and doing that same thing for like 30 days. And that can be literally like, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to have a glass of water because I don't normally start my day with a glass of water. And so it's like these small things that build on each other instead of like, today's the day I'm going to not think yeah. like this anymore. You know, it's like, what are those things that I'm going to meditate for one minute, you know, like, or whatever that might be for you. And then that builds on itself over time. And then you start to learn, like, I can trust myself, but it's like these baby steps. And that's the thing is like, she has a book that's beautiful. It's like the handbook that we all should be handed out (laughs) in life. And it's called how to do the work. I mean, it's literally, and she is very transparent and she's like, I'm still doing this work. So that's just, I think a general resource, but also just something to just take, like, what is that one small promise I can start? And then I'm going to do it for the next 30 days and not add on top of it. I'm just going to start here. So I love that. And like, I've even observed in myself, it ebbs and flows when I'm feeling like my self-esteem is in a great place. And then weeks where it's not, or weeks where I'm despairing or weeks where I feel really optimistic. It's all a part of it. But like one thing I've observed when I'm feeling like particularly sexually vulnerable with my own thoughts and my own self, it's generally connected to something else. If I'm being really frank, like when I start like digging down and going down the rabbit hole. So when I start thinking like, Ooh, I want to like, I just want to do this thing with my body. Or I'm thinking like things that I wouldn't prefer. It's really connected for me to unworthiness sometimes or self-loathing or disappointment with something that happened or a narrative that I'm stuck in a loop from the past. And so all those things are just like springboards or opportunities. Sometimes when you're having like a big reaction inside yourself, if you're able to like just stop and take like one breath and one pause and just say like, is this actually the surface of something much deeper that like could use some tending to that could use some nurturing because that really is true for me. I don't know if that's true for other people, but it's something I've noticed in myself. And like, even like one step could literally be giving yourself four or five breaths where you breathe in for four seconds and out for four seconds and in for four seconds and out for four seconds. It's actually called box breathing. I think like a Navy SEAL invented it. And you you could even like build it to six or seven or eight seconds. But what that does is it disrupts the body's kind of fight or flight response that might be happening or, or like the tension that might building, like you talked about breaking the tension and it just gives your body and your mind an opportunity. Like tapping's another one, like Steve's doing left to right tapping, like just breaking up that moment. If you are feeling out of control or like worried, just give yourself 20 to 30 seconds to take a break from that. And then maybe you can come back to that thought. So that would be like another step. The other thing, like, I think that is important for the people who like have never felt permission to approach desire, maybe because their identity has been kept from them or like the opportunity to be free to who they're attracted to when they start to allow themselves to be attracted, like it will change their lives. 
And that, that can feel scary, but like, I would say to that person, like if you can allow yourself permission to just enjoy how you're made and enjoy that you're attracted to somebody and like honor that in yourself, that would be the other thing. Cause we're talking a lot about like people who are afraid of it, but like for the people that need to be celebrating, just having the freedom of being able to say, I'm attracted to that man or I'm attracted to that woman. And that's great. That's pretty cool. So that's another side of the coin. This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. Gene Jam and other songs were composed and produced by Latifah Alatas. Another music from this episode is from the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at Fun Parts Podcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. You know, in the church, we talk about sovereignty. God is sovereign, which means God is in control. The church took away everybody else's sovereignty, and Mm. we need to claim sovereignty. I'm not taking anything away from whatever the divine invites us into, but trusting yourself is about having sovereignty. It's about having a sphere in which you really have say so. Without sovereignty, you don't even choose the divine. You just get swept up in something. Thank you.